Good morning. I hope that you had a fantastic Christmas week with your friends, your family. I hope that you enjoyed your celebrations as we remembered the birth of our Savior Jesus as we gathered together in, in memory of gifts given to him and we gave gifts to each other. And I look forward to gathering together again after Christmas is over. So today, as always, welcome to our online Sunday morning service. We gather in person every Sunday morning, including this one, at 10.30 a.m. Now, most people that hear this are listening to the audio-only version that's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is search Faith on Hill. Uh, if you watch the video versions, those are always available on our Facebook and there is a live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings on our website. But we don't just meet to hear somebody preach a sermon. We are a family of faith. We are a community of believers. And so we gather in person and in small groups throughout the week. Now, this is what I call dead week, the week between Christmas and New Year's, where we downshift. And that's totally fine. No small groups this week. Enjoy your rest, your pause, all of that. But in January, we'll be gathering back together again. And we do have small groups that meet throughout the week. And you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. I for per personally and firmly believe that small groups are the most important thing that we do throughout the week. As we gather together, as we pray together, as we study God's word together, as we get to know one another and encourage one another. We're always taking uh, food donations for the Wichita Family Center so you can... Uh, Reach out, Adam at Faith on Hill, if you want to make a, a drop-off. And we want to thank everybody who donated to our Toy and Joy Drive. Uh, hearing the stories of how our community was served uh, was just so great to hear. Faith on Hill also had the opportunity to help a family in the community uh, that went through what I, I would say the, the craziest set of tragedies I can ever remember hearing. And uh, we were thankful to be connected with them and to be able to help them. And so I want to say thank you to you. Everyone who gives uh, does so as an act of worship. And you can give at faithonhill.com. Uh, but it's not just an act of worship, although that's our primary reason for giving. But it also supports the work that God has called us to do. And so when we give, we have the ability to be generous and to help those in our community as the Lord connects us and, and gives us opportunities. So thank you for that. We're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew. I almost said Mark, the Gospel of Matthew. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2, verse 13 says, when they had gone, now that is speaking of the Magi. So this takes place by implication, like the very night after the, the wise men or the Magi leave. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through his prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. 
in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. So what that's saying is that Herod in his conversations with the Magi, back before the Magi knew that Herod was like a crazy murdering psycho king, was that you could kind of figure out when did they first see the star? How long did it take them to get there? And so according to Herod's reckoning, the earliest date that the child could have been born was two years prior. That's why uh, many believe, and in fact, I personally believe, that the Magi were not present at the same time as the shepherds. I know all of our nativity sets have that, but that's not what the Bible talks about. And it's very possible that this is two full years, that Jesus is not a baby or an infant. He's a toddler at this point. But, but that's the reckoning. So every male child two years and under, not just in Bethlehem, but in all the surrounding farms and little, little clusters of houses, all were to be killed. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children. Uh, Rachel was the, uh, yeah, the, the idea that this region would have been associated with the children of Rachel. And so Rachel weeping for her children speaks to that idea of these are the, those people. Refusing to be comforted, for they are no more. And of course, if that happened to me and my family, I would refuse to be comforted as well. Verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the life of the child are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that... uh, Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went to live in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet that he, speaking of the Messiah, would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Was Jesus a refugee? There are over 40 8 million displaced people in this world right now. 20 million people fit the description of what we would think of as a refugee, someone who has had to flee where they are from and go somewhere else to find shelter, safety, security, food, peace, all of those things. 20 million people right now in the world. Another 28, and that brings us to that full 48 million number, but another 28 are what are considered internally displaced. And what that means is they haven't left their national borders, but they would still be considered refugees. You know, America is a huge country, but in places like Europe, you know, you just cross one border within an hour and now you're in another country. It's the same idea. Like they're in a country that's big enough to house them, but they have, so they haven't had to leave their national borders, but they are still displaced. They have left their homes. They've had to seek shelter and safety and security somewhere else. So they are what's called internally displaced, but I would still call them a refugee. And I think most of us would. Was Jesus a refugee? Now here's the problem. I, I did some searching the last couple weeks. You go on YouTube. Go on YouTube and you type in, was Jesus a refugee? 
You go on Google and you type in these searches. Now, you might say, Adam, I mean, do you do any more research than just a, a YouTube search? No, obviously I do. But those things give us a quick snapshot of where people are in the zeitgeist or the thinking of our current age. And if you go on YouTube and you type in, was Jesus a refugee? You'll find two kinds of videos. The first you'll find are sermons and lectures from a certain type of church. And they all say Jesus was a refugee. And then they stop talking about Jesus and use it as a springboard to talk about their personal cause or campaign towards um, refugee, helping refugees or bringing people in, open borders, that kind of thing. The other type of video you see <clears throat> are sermons and lectures from the type of church who have a different pre-established political or philosophical view towards refugees. And so they will say, no, Jesus was not a refugee. Or they won't even acknowledge it if you just say, here, I'm going to look for a lecture or a sermon on this passage of Scripture. If they're not refuting the idea that Jesus is a refugee, they're going in some totally different direction. Almost universally, what I found was that these lectures, sermons, discussions, whatever, were based on opinions, philosophies, points of view that already existed. They would have believed that whether this was in the Bible or not. So how do you know what the Bible says? Because quite honestly, if I were to walk into one church and preach a sermon about Jesus being a refugee, and so we need to help the refugees, they would say, amen, we agree with that. And if I walked into another church and preached that, they wouldn't want me back. And it has nothing to do with what the Bible actually says. It has to do with what we already believed, pre-established positions. How do we know what the Bible says? I'm going to throw a big word your way that you don't have to feel bad if you immediately forget. But I'm going to throw a big word your way. Hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a method or theory of interpretation. And contextually, it's almost always used around biblical or scriptural interpretation. It's the method that we use to understand what the Bible is saying. If you have a bad hermeneutic, if you have a bad method or theory of biblical interpretation, then all it's going to do is confirm your own pre-established bias. If you have a good one, I believe it will challenge our biases. That doesn't mean that we were wrong beforehand or that we were right beforehand, but we should wrestle through what the Bible says, and I mean that through the whole Bible. The whole Bible. A bad hermeneutic just confirms your bias. And let's say that you're right. Let's say that you're right, and you got there because, for whatever reason, what you already believed agrees with the Bible, and you got there because of a bad hermeneutic. And you said, the Bible agrees with me, even if it doesn't in that verse. But you know what? In general, the Bible does. And so you say, oh, well, I'm good. What happens the next time? Or the time after that? Or the time after that? There's a preacher who was fairly well known on the West Coast. And I remember I heard his, his Bible teaching back when I was in high school. And I remember just being so encouraged and, and blessed by it and challenged to grow in my, my faith in Jesus. 
And then as I went to Bible college and I started to study hermeneutics, I realized that this preacher was just kind of pulling stuff out of thin air. And I talked to one of my professors about it and he, he chuckled and he said, oh, I know who that guy is. You know, he has the benefit of just being right. And what he meant by that is, yeah, he just says stuff, but you know what? He's generally, he's, he's okay. He says things that aren't wrong. So, you know, if you're, if you're encouraged, be encouraged. But here's the problem. What happens if your hermeneutic is bad and then you stop just being kind of unintentionally right? And now you're unintentionally wrong. And later on in his preaching ministry, in fact, the last time I heard him preach, he preached a heavy-handed, legalistic, borderline spiritually abusive message. But his bad hermeneutic was still there. And as somebody who has studied these things over the years, I could, I, I'm going, okay, I get why he's saying that. I get why he's saying that. I understand what he's doing here. And it was bad 20 years ago, but 20 years ago, he wasn't preaching that. I hope that makes sense. We want a good method of understanding God's word so that we won't just live in our own biases, our own preconceived ideas, but that God's word challenges us and changes us and shapes us. I don't want my bias confirmed. I want it challenged. And if I'm right, great. If I'm wrong, Lord, change me. Now, there are different ways different hermeneutics, different methods of interpretation. Now, this is, I, don't, I wouldn't even call this like a 101 level list here, but this is just a basic rundown. Uh, you have literal interpretation, and that's, you know, hey, we take the Bible literally. And some people take the Bible all literally. I think that's very few. I think most people take the Bible literally, except where it's obviously figurative. If, if, it, says that, um, if it says that God, you know, caused rain to fall or caused rain not to fall, I believe that literally happened. If it says that God is my rock and my strong fortress, I don't believe that God is literally a rock or literally a castle. I understand that to be a metaphor for God's strength and his sound sureness in my life. And, and so we would understand that. But that's the literal view. And then some people have, there's the moral way of looking at the Bible. That everything is not literal, but it's giving us a general set of morals. And then there's the allegory or the analog way of looking at things. And what that means is, hey, you know what? The Bible isn't really meant to be literal. It's meant to paint a picture. So when the people of Israel left the slavery in Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and they headed to the promised land, what that really is about, it's an allegory or it's an analogy, an analog of our being delivered from the bondage of sin and death and we cross through that Red Sea and we are on the other side. We are saved and heading to the promised land. That's another way of looking at it. And then there's what, I've never heard it called this. I, I think I might, I'm going to be bold and say I might have coined this one. The conformist way of looking at the Bible. And what that means is, and, and there's a bunch of different labels that gets put on this. I'm just kind of giving an umbrella label. But what that means is that we are going to conform God's word to whatever fits our current cultural moment. Whatever fits our current cultural moment, we will just say that's what this means. And then there's deductive and inductive. Deductive says I have a hypothesis, a pre-established 
idea or belief. And then I found a part of the Bible that seems to agree with that. So I'm just going to use that as a launching pad for something I already believed. Let's say that you wanted to preach about faith, if you're a pastor. Some pastor wants to preach about faith. And so they go and they find David and Goliath and they do a sermon on fighting your giants and stepping out in faith and all that. And it's, it's nice. Nothing wrong with that. Except that you already believed that. The, the Bible isn't being the teacher. You're just using it to prove your point. And then there's what's called inductive study which is a method that I try to go towards that says we're going to take whatever the Bible says and then we're going to, through the inductive method, we're going to say, hey, what is the Bible saying? And then I will conform whatever I preach based off of that. Now, you might have recognized in that list I gave a bunch of different things that are useful. You know what? I generally take the Bible literally except where it's obviously figurative. But when it comes to some of like the Old Testament laws, which I believe have been fulfilled in Christ and are no longer applicable, I still look for a moral principle. Or I will look for an allegory or an analog from these historical writings and say, hey, you know what? People are people. And this happened back then. And what's something that it can paint a picture of for our day? And then we've seen people who just try to get the Bible to conform to whatever the cultural moment is. And let me tell you that everybody does it. All of us have been guilty of it. Young, old, right, left, doesn't matter. Everyone's done it. And then there are people who just, they read something. Hey, it says what I already fit, you know, deductive. How do you, how do you come to this here? I'll be the first to say that there's no one perfect way of interpreting the word of God. I like the inductive method. I like taking... What does God's word say? What does it say? And then I'm going to go from there. I actually have a, a document, a word document, that's like a template for me. And I'd be happy to share it with you. And when, I when I'm doing a deep study, like there's different reasons why you read the Bible. Like sometimes you're just reading for familiarity. That's like, you know, the new year's about to start. Let's say you're like, hey, I'm going to read, you know, the whole Bible in this year. Or I'm going to read all of the New Testament this year or whatever. That's a familiarity reading. And then there's uh, what we call uh, like a core mastery or a, a, you're going to learn something. Like I, I want to do a real deep dive on a particular subject in the Bible. And so you just go into that and you're reading like, hey, I'm, I'm going to find every verse in the Bible that talks about this and I'm going to go through that. And it's not, it's not, uh, it's kind of a bigger picture idea, right? But then there's like and then there's just devotional ones where I'm just going to, I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to open the book of Colossians. I'm going to read. And as I read, I'm going to pray and I'll read a few verses and something hits me and I'm going to stop and I'm just going to pray over it. That's kind of a devotional reading. But sometimes when you're doing a study, when you say, I want to know what God's word says, I believe that going through an inductive method is a fantastic way of removing my own biases removing my own pre-established positions and letting God speak to me and rather than me speaking to God's word. There's the real basic way of doing this is a three-step process. Observation, interpretation, and application. Observation, you just observe what's going on. So in my word document, it just says observation and I just start writing 
Verse 1, I see this. You know, uh, well, in, in this case, we started in verse 13. So let me give you an example. Turn back a page here. When they had gone. So I would write in my document, hey, the Magi have left. This gives us a time indication. And that's it. Just a quick sentence. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Okay, uh, Dreams seem to be how God speaks to Joseph. That's just an observation because I've read other parts of the Bible and, and everywhere where God's speaking to Joseph in the book of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, it's through a dream. An angel appears through a dream. I just write, hey, I, this seems to be something I'm observing as a pattern. And you just keep going on, right, of observation. What are some basic things that you can observe? Hey, the family is unsafe. The angel appears to them and says, get up because the king wants to kill your son. The family is unsafe. That's a basic observation. And whether you believe that Jesus is a refugee or he's not, whether you believe that this part of the Bible is speaking to that subject or another subject, it's, it's a pretty undebatable observation. The family is unsafe. That's why they're being told to get out. Here's another observation. The government in their time and in their place was wicked. Now, maybe you're saying, well, no, duh, that's just government. All right, but, but understand the government there, I'm not talking about anywhere else, I'm just observing, is wicked. They are unsafe, and they are unsafe because of the king. And if you want to know why they're unsafe because of the king, you can go back to last week where we talked about, the oh, two weeks ago really, when we talked about the Magi, and you'll find out why the king wants to murder Jesus. So the family is unsafe. They're unsafe because of the king. And not only that, but home. Home is no longer safe for them. It's, it's one thing to feel unsafe, right? Like, I don't feel safe. Maybe you're out somewhere. Maybe you say, I don't feel safe alone at night, or I don't feel safe in certain places or in certain situations or in certain neighborhoods. I get that. There have been places in my life where I've been where I haven't felt safe, you know, uh, and, and probably times where I should have felt a lot less safe than I felt. Uh, you know, there's times I, I remember being a young, younger guy uh, in my early 20s and, and uh, walking around the streets of London, or the streets of Manchester, England. Manchester, England is a, a it's kind of like a, uh, it's a rough place. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of a rough, gritty town. And, and I'm just walking around like, you know, 19, 20 years old, having no idea that maybe uh, bad things happen on this street. Um, I lived on a road that had some really, really sketchy apartments on it. And I had friends who would tell me, yeah, I went jogging and like these kids chased me and like were trying to like rob me and they're throwing rocks at me like, I've walked down that street and I've never had that happen. I don't know. But maybe I should have felt a lot less safe. Home is generally a place where we feel safe. Once I'm in, once I lock my doors, once I'm inside my four walls, I'm safe there. I'm safe among my community. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why immigrant or ethnic communities tend to live together, one of the reasons, is there is a safety factor. There's, there's a safety of being together. In fact, it's not unreasonable to think that when they fled to Egypt, that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus lived among an immigrant Jewish community in Egypt. 
Why? Because they're your people. They speak your language. You feel safe there. There's an exposure when you're different. It's something most Americans have never experienced. Most white Americans have never experienced this. I experienced it for the first time in 1998 when I went to Russia. Communism had like five years fallen. And I was, you know, look, you just, you looked like an American. You dressed like an American. And then they'd hear you talk and it confirmed what they already knew. And I remember people would just stare at us. Like I thought, that's rude. Why are you staring at me? But they just, we were so foreign to them. And it was the first time I'd experienced being different, not feeling like I was just part of the crowd. I go to a, you know, I go to a baseball game and, and there's thousands of people there, but I'm in the crowd. These are my people. These are fellow baseball fans. And they're mostly Americans, except when the Canadians come down for the Blue Jays games, right? But they're, they're mostly, they're Americans and they're baseball fans. These are my people. But then you're walking the streets of Russia or the streets of, of Europe and I've been in Germany and Austria and, uh, you know, lived in England and, and you go, wait, I'm different and I dress differently. And once they hear my voice, I talk differently. They know I'm different. My friend Joe, he, uh, he's, uh, he's African-American. He lives down in the Bay Area, but he will go and do um, music evangelism uh, in Europe. And he, he really, really good blues guitar player. And he's tall, six foot four, six foot five. So here's this tall, black blues guitar player. And he goes to these little towns in like Serbia and Hungary and these places in Eastern Europe. And he'll connect with churches there. And then he'll go into like a bar and he'll play, they'll get a little band together and he'll play blues rock. And then he'll say, hey, you know, he'll just meet people, connect with people, tell them about Jesus. I'm playing at the church tomorrow morning. You can come and in this whole idea, right? It, he says it's, it's, if you're the only black guy, the only American in this little town for like a hundred miles, you know, you stand out. Home is no longer safe. And now this one place that you said, I'm, I'm safe here. Now it's no longer safe. And I have to go out where I've always considered it unsafe, where there's no support system, where there's no safety system. Those are observations. That's what's happening. The second step of an inductive type of Bible study is interpretation. Now, maybe you already know this, but if you, if you do, that's all right. It's a good reminder. Interpretation. And this is where people make a mistake because they make a jump from observation. I've observed a bunch of things and now I'm going to make my application. I'm going to say, this is how we should do it. But interpretation says, wait, let's, let's see what's actually happening there. Hey, uh, you know, the government was wicked. Application. We, we are against the government. Well, is that what's being said? Herod's working for himself. I have an observation. You know, the family is unsafe home is no longer safe. What's going on? Well, you know what? God seems to be working for the salvation of the whole world here. All of these children died in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. God is working, but he's working for the salvation of the whole world. And humanity is working for the destruction of the whole world. And Joseph's just trying to keep his family safe. And if I jump to application before interpretation, then I'm just going to get back to my own preconceived biases. But if I start, I'm going to observe something. I'm just going to write down. Some people have a really hard time with observing because they want to get to the interpreting and the applying. 
Some people have a real hard time with interpretation. They just say, I'm going to go straight to application and I'm not going to like sift through what all of this means. And so what I do in my, my little inductive Bible study document is I have like a set of questions that I ask myself like, uh, all right, it's the interpretation time. Before I start applying, hey, are there any questions being asked? Because instead of me saying what's going on, I'm forcing myself to ask questions. Hey, is this telling me anything about God? Oh, well, it's tell, this, this shows me that God is working for the salvation of the whole world. Does this tell me anything about people? Yeah, a lot of different things. And so these things you kind of work through. Then you get to the application. And there's different types of application. There's personal application. Hey, how does this work for me? There's larger application. There's big picture or community application. Because, you know, there's me, but how does this work for my family? Or how does this work for my church? Or how does this work for the, the, the community or the job that I have or the school that I'm a part of or whatever? So like in a personal application, I would work through this and I would say, hey, personal application. Because I see that God is working for the salvation of the whole world and I see Joseph is working for his family. That's an interpretation based on observation. Personal application. I know that God is working. But Joseph had responsibility. Joseph had to get up and go. One of the things that I look for in my uh, interpretation thing is I look, or actually in my observation process, is I look for key words. Hey, is there a word that's repeated a lot? You know, if you have 10 verses or 50 verses and the word run is repeated or the word love is repeated or the word grace is repeated, you know, more than any other word, hey, that might be an indication that that's an important word in this part of the Bible. The, the words get up are repeated over and over again in this section. Get up. Joseph had a responsibility to do something. So on a personal level, I can trust that God is working because he was working here even in one of these great human tragedies. But God is working, and yet I have a responsibility just like Joseph had a responsibility. Joseph had to get up. Joseph had to do something. Joseph had to move. I can't just say, oh, God's going to work it all out. I have to do my part. That's on a personal level. And then like on a, a larger level, on a bigger picture level, outside of myself, thinking about others. One of the dangers of application in our Bible study is that we're just going to think that it only is about me and myself and my own personal situation instead of thinking about others. How can I help people feel safe? Home wasn't safe. The family felt unsafe. How can I help other people feel safe. One of our kind of like ministry model principles, you know, we want Faith on Hill to be a fun place, a safe place, and a Jesus place. A safe place. How do we make our church feel safe? How does my family make others around me feel safe? We wear masks when we gather in person because we believe biblically that we have an obligation to listen to the authorities that God has placed over us. Some of us agree with that policy. Some of us don't. Even in my own family, my, you know, my wife tends to agree more with that policy than I do. You know why I always have a mask in my pocket, though? Because if somebody doesn't feel safe, I want to make them feel safe. 
Now, here's the danger when it comes to Bible interpretation and why I said we need to have a good hermeneutic. The, the, the further my application gets from me, the less powerful I think in some ways that it is. And what I mean by that is this. Let's say that I preached a whole sermon about refugees and how we have to help refugees and Jesus was a refugee. And then I start advocating for a particular political policy or agenda so that we can do all that. The Bible doesn't give us any policy recommendations here. The Bible doesn't tell us what to do. It just says this happened. I'm just giving you an example. In my life, how can I help people feel safe? And you know what? I have found a really quick way to do that is to put a mask on in the right situation. And to even ask. Sometimes I'll say to somebody, hey, um, I have a mask in my pocket. They're like, you know, coming over there. Hey, I've got a mask in my pocket. Would you feel safer if I put it on? That's a really basic, easy way for just a couple of minutes or whatever it is in a conversation so that I can say to somebody, hey, how can I make you feel safe? And we can start expanding that as a church. Like when somebody walks in, if they come in from the outside and as we live in a post-Christian culture, how do we make them feel safe? Bigger picture. I think it's a very fair question. In application, as I'm looking through the scripture and I'm saying, here I see Jesus, who his home was no longer safe. The government's trying to kill him and he has to flee to another country. It's a fair question, and I'm just asking a question. What if Jesus was at our southern border? I don't mean our northern border. I'm recording this before Christmas. Unless it snows, I'm going to be driving up to my parents' house, which is five minutes south of the Canadian border. I have been to both the border with Mexico and the border with Canada. The difference between those two is night and day because the government isn't trying to kill people in Canada. Canada, as much as I might make jokes about Canada here or there, Canada is not a place overrun with warlords the way that Mexico and Central America are. And they're, they're overrun with this corruption and warlords in large part because of America's sin of substance abuse. What if Jesus was on our southern border? What if Jesus is on our southern border? And literally the government or somebody who is the functional government, it might not be the official one, but you know, in a lot of places, the cartels are the official one. And they're trying to escape Honduras or they're trying to escape a part of Mexico. They're trying to get out of Culiacan or these other places in Sinaloa where the government really doesn't control things. The cartels control things. And what if they're at our border? I'm not advocating for a policy there. I'll tell you, I'm not 100% sure what the right policy is. But I think we have to ask the question. Growing up, growing up in the church, the phrase vote your values was re repeated and repeated and repeated. Maybe you heard the same thing. If we're going to vote our values, shouldn't we ask that question? Again, I'm not advocating a policy because I don't know. Shouldn't we ask the question, what if Jesus was our border? All of this comes back to this basic idea. Does God's word change us or do we change God's word to conform to us? Remember that conformist view I was talking about. Do we change God's word or does God's word change us? 
you know what? This part of the Bible is easier for a certain type of Christian to accept than another type of Christian. And the Christians who readily accept this part of the Bible have a hard time with a lot of other places. All of us have to struggle through these things. But it's worth it. All of us come, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian, and you, you've been thinking about the Christian faith, you've been considering following Jesus, but you say, you know what, what about this? I, I believe this. I think Jesus might be the answer, but I also believe this other thing that Jesus seems not like, or the Bible seems to be against, or the Jesus people seem to not be cool with. It is worth laying down what I believe about some other thing, some policy, some position, some point of view, some philosophy, to have the life-changing power of Jesus Christ flowing through my life. And there are times, and I'd be happy, you know, feel free to email me and say, hey, when's the time when Jesus has changed your mind about something? And I can give you some times where as reading the Bible, reading God's word, I have had to ask hard questions about things that I believed and I've had to change accordingly. Happy to talk about it. Does God's word change us or do we change God's word? And I believe that if we have a good method of interpreting the word of God, then God, we will allow God to change us because we aren't putting up barriers and biases and walls. Jesus is worth following even when we have to change our mind about something. I believe that's true. Let's pray together and ask Jesus to do that work in us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are fully God, you are fully human. And that human part of you always submitted yourself to the will of your Father. And I ask that you would give us that same submission. Submit us to the word of your Father, of our God. Submit us to the work of your Holy Spirit, who is equally God with you. Submit us and change us and keep us from trying to change who you are to fit our comfort. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. May God be with you this week and may you find rest in this week between Christmas and New Year's so that we can move forward in strength in 2022, serving Jesus together.